option to make sure that um, they could get financing from other um, from from banks. No, um, no, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation or, or OPIC, which is its acronym, is um, this is a group that's pretty unknown to most Americans. What does it do? Well, in short, this is the smallest but perhaps most powerful investment bank in the world. Uh, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation was created during the Nixon administration to provide uh, uh, loan guarantees and, pro and political risk insurance to American corporations seeking to do business overseas. Um, OPIC is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. Treasury. So um, whatever loans that they extend, whatever political risk insurance they extend, is backed by taxpayers. Well, for instance, the, the, the best example of, of OPIC coming to help Enron was for uh, Enron's Dabble Power Project. It was a huge uh, power plant that Enron built in India. It was the largest private investment ever made in India in the last 15 years. Um, biggest single project in the last uh, uh, two decades in India as well. Well, Enron would not have been able to make that investment, which ended up being over $2 billion. Uh, it had partners with General Electric and Bechtel, the big uh, construction engineering firm, to build this power plant. But they would have never been able to do it without the backing of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which came up with loan guarantees and political risk insurance to, uh, to back the commercial banks who then took the risk on the project. Um, but, the, but the Enron made certain that it courted the Clinton administration to make sure that they got the kind of treatment at OPIC that they wanted. And one former OPIC staffer told me, um, and I have it in the, in the book, he said, whatever Enron wanted at OPIC, it got. If you're just joining us, my guest is Robert Bryce. He's an investigative reporter who's written a new book called Pipe Dreams, Greed, Ego, and the Death of Enron. Um, let's talk about Enron's connections to George Bush Sr. and to George W. Bush. Um, what were Enron's first contacts with George H.W. Bush? Well, Ken Lay was an early contributor to uh, George H.W. Bush when he ranked, made his first run for president against Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, then later under the Reagan administration, uh, Lay had a lot of contact with Bush uh, in, in the effort to deregulate the natural gas markets, which was done under the Reagan administration. Then in 87, when uh, Bush was running again for the White House, Lay was one of his first contributors. He gave him $1,000. He chaired fundraisers in Houston. Then when Lay, uh, or rather when Bush got to the White House, uh, Lay was, uh, had a, had a sleepover at the White House with, with George H.W. Bush. So then in 1990, um, Bush selected Lay to, to be a, uh, a co-chairman of the host committee for the Economic Summit of Industrialized Nations in Houston. So that gave Lay a lot of access to Margaret Thatcher and to Gorbachev and other leaders who had come to Houston for that meeting. So that was really, uh, you know, over that decade, the Lay Bush connection really developed, um, and then that led to, of course, greater cooperation and, 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 and donations from, from Lay and Enron to George W. Bush. And before we get to George W. Bush, in 1993, uh, Enron hired former Secretary of State James Baker and former Secretary of Commerce Robert Mossbacher, and they, they were just out of the first Bush administration. What was their positions with Enron? 
Kinley hired uh, at, at about that same time. He hired uh, James A. Baker III, Robert Mossbacher, and about that same time he hired Wendy Graham. But uh, Baker and Mossbacher were hired by Enron to go to Kuwait and lobby the Kuwaitis on a power plant that Enron wanted to build in Kuwait. Now, this is right after the end of the Gulf War, um, and uh, Kuwait had suffered uh, enormous damage uh, under the when the Iraqis invaded, and um, Enron was one of a number of companies that were really pushing the Kuwaitis to uh, open up their markets and, and allow them to come in and open the power plant. Enron didn't get that contract for that power plant, but I mean, if there's an example of Enron really clearly buying influence, that one uh, that one's unsurpassed. So the lobbying in Kuwait that, that Baker and Mossbacker did, would you say that's a very typical revolving door kind of position to have from government to private business? Or does this seem, you as, seem to you as being something out of the ordinary? I think that example of, of James A. Baker III going to work for, for Enron, um, you know, less than three months after he comes out of the State Department is one of the most egregious abuses of the revolving door that I can recall. Here is a man who was the former Secretary of State who played a key role in the, in the war in Kuwait in planning strategy and dealing with the Kuwaitis and dealing with other Arab states. And now, you know, just out of, just as George H.W. Bush goes out of office, he turns around and sells himself as a lobbyist to a company that wants to uh, uh, profit essentially off of the war. Um, and I, I think that uh, I can recall no other example where Secretary of State has been that blatant in terms of turning around and selling access. Let's get to George W. Bush. Did Enron back George W. Bush in his campaign for governor of Texas? Yes, um, uh, George George W. Bush was a great beneficiary of, of Enron's money, and all um, Enron executives donated $146,500 uh, to George W. Bush's campaign, uh, the executives and the company, uh, whereas uh, th that was about seven times more than they contributed to Ann Richards, who was uh, the Democratic opponent to George W. and the incumbent. Are there things that uh, Governor Bush did in Texas that directly benefited Enron? Well, yes, he signed into law a bill uh, deregulating the state's electricity uh, markets. Um, now, that was something that had been working through the Texas legislature for some time, but Enron lobbyists uh, made it clear to me, and, and I talk about it in the book, that as they were pushing for uh, electricity deregulation, they knew that whatever happened, if they got stymied by the governor's staff and they weren't getting the kind of hearing that they wanted from the governor's staff, they knew they could always call back to Enron headquarters in Houston and, say, and ask Lay to call the governor and they could immediately get through. Um, that, was a, that was a clear example of where Enron lobbyists and Enron uh, personnel felt that they had extraordinary access to the governor that a lot of other uh, uh, corporations in the state clearly did not. During the 1990s, Enron's political contributions kept rising. You say those contributions quadrupled between 1992 and 96, rising to over 1.1 million in 1996, with, over, with about 81% of that money going to Republicans. By the year 2000, the figure more than doubled again to 2.4 million, with 72% of that money going to Republicans. Were you in on any behind-the-scenes discussions at Enron about the value of giving an increasing amount of money to politicians? 
No, not really. I think in some ways you could even say that this was simply that they were identified or they were aligned ideologically, that the, the Republicans were pushing a laissez-faire attitude and that that was, that was clearly what Enron wanted. That was their, that was their uh, uh, whole uh, uh, business strategy was leave us alone, let us go into these markets, let us open these markets and do what we will um, and don't impede us. What kind of contribution did Enron make to George W. Bush's presidential campaign? Well, the company was a huge funder of the campaign uh, throughout and was, was, was Bush's biggest benefactor. I would argue that one of the key issues, though, that the company and, and Lay were able to make was during the Florida recount. Lay was a big uh, contributor to the Bush campaign during the recount effort. But moreover, Enron supplied uh, its airplanes to the Bush campaign during the Florida recount. And remember, this was uh, in November of 2000. It was unclear who was going to prevail, whether it was going to be uh, 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 Al Gore or George W. Bush, and Enron provided its planes, as did you know, three other Houston energy firms, uh, Reliant Energy, Anadarko Petroleum, and Halliburton, all gave their planes to, the, uh, to George W. Bush's campaign, uh, which came at an absolutely critical time in order uh, to allow the campaign to move its people from Houston to Washington to Florida to, to really manage their ability to and, and manage their whole uh, campaign strategy. Did the Democrats have um, companies that favored them supplying planes to them? None. Al Gore didn't have any of this. Uh, not only did George W. Bush during the recount out fundraise him by about four to one, uh, Gore didn't have any enough contacts or good enough contacts in the business community to say, hey, I need an airplane to get my guys from Tennessee or from Washington to Florida. There, none of his campaign uh, uh, expense filings or contribution filings have shown any uh, campaign plane uh, donations similar to what Bush was able to get from the, uh, from the Houston energy firms. You say that Kenneth Lay recommended a total of 21 people for positions in the administration of George W. Bush. He only got three of the spots that he asked for, but these were critically important jobs to Enron. What positions were they? The positions that Enron and, and Ken Lay wanted filled were, in, were that were particularly important to them were to the FERC, the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, and in fact, one of the key appointees that Lay was backing was Pat Wood, um, who Lay had also backed for the head of the Texas Public Utilities Commission right after uh, Bush became governor in Texas. Um, but Wood was a uh, uh, believed in deregulation of energy markets. Um, he was a strong proponent of Enron's Enron's position, generally speaking. Um, and after Bush was elected, Lay wrote him and said, "We want we want Pat Wood at, as the head of the FERC." And indeed, that's what happened. Bush appointed uh, Wood and made him head of the FERC. And another position that uh, another person that was backed by uh, Enron was uh, Nora Brownell, who was also was also put on the FERC board. The third position was Glenn McCullough who uh, was appointed the chairmanship of the Tennessee Valley Authority. This was just as important uh, from Enron's point of view as, it, as the FERC appointments because Enron had been involved in a long uh, uh, battle with the TVA over contracts that it had to supply electricity to the TVA, and it wanted a sympathetic ear there. And by getting McCullough in that spot, uh, Enron gained a tactical advantage. There were other people in the Bush administration who were connected to Enron. Do you want to list some of them? 
Well, sure. Tom White, uh, Secretary of the Army, is probably the, the, the one who has the, the deepest Enron ties, um, and also the ones that are, are, uh, have, have been uh, the cause of the most uh, speculation and, and most investigation. Um, he was in a key position at uh, Enron Energy Services. He was the vice chairman there. Um, Enron Energy Services was, was touted by Enron as the next big thing. This was going to be the company that was going to go in, retrofit buildings, save companies money on their energy bills, um, and make a ton of money in the process. Um, well, White made tens of millions of dollars in stock at Enron, um, and he you know, has alleged that he wasn't in, involved in, did not have any knowledge of the accounting irregularities that were happening at Enron Energy Services um, and, and really aggressive accounting that was happening at, at Enron Energy Services. And then he was appointed to this key position within the Pentagon, um, where he also recommended once he got there that the, the Pentagon begin looking at energy outsourcing of the type that Enron was offering. Now, you're right that all of this gave Enron unprecedented access to the White House. Give us an example that you consider to, to be the most um, extreme example of the access that they had. Well, I think that in terms of the Bush administration, that that influence was shown in the uh, the national energy policy uh, uh, plan that uh, the White House released last year. Um, this was a document, and the, and the whole process was headed by uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, um, and Enron had numerous meetings with Cheney during the drafting of this document. Uh, Ken Lay uh, has, has uh, investigations have shown that he's had had something like a dozen phone calls either to Karl Rove or to Cheney himself. He had a he had a personal meeting with Cheney, um, and there are aspects of that national energy plan that as it came out that were clearly written that favored Enron. Now, Enron hired Wendy Graham about five weeks after her tenure on the Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, after her position there ended. Um, what was her work with Enron? She served on Enron's board um, and and made tens of thousands of dollars as a director every year. She also got stock options as an Enron uh, director. What makes her position at Enron so important was that when she served at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, one of her last acts as chairman of that commission was to push through uh, uh, a proposal that exempted Enron's energy trading business from any federal oversight. Um, that was critically important because when, when she got that job in early 93, Enron's gas trading business, known as the Gas Bank, was just starting to take off, and the company needed a free hand. It needed to be assured that federal regulators were not going to step in and prevent it from doing all, all the derivative swaps, all the uh, futures contracts that it was just now beginning to uh, to get involved in. So Graham went from passing through that regulation at, at the CFTC to Enron's board in a, in a span of about five weeks. Now, Wendy Graham is also married to Senator Phil Graham, and um, his, his um, Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000 contained what's been described as the Enron exemption. What was the Enron exemption? Well, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000 um, was critically important again to Enron because by 2000 the company's uh, uh, commodities futures and all of its its uh, derivatives business was enormous. The, the the Commodity Futures Modernization Act 
took the the regulation that Wendy Graham had had passed through at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in '93 and codified it and made it into law. And and it went a step further. It said that whatever uh, 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 derivatives or whatever commodity futures are being traded on online exchanges like the one that Enron uh, was operating were completely exempt from federal oversight and regulation, even if they were designed to be fraudulent.